Welcome at the jail, welcome. And DeMott Wheatfield, welcome to church. Uh, I love being a part of a church like this. You know, 130 years of generations honoring Jesus together. And I love being a part of doing something real positive. I love being committed to deep dis- or deep discipleship. I don't think that that comes easily. It comes by putting aside our personal preferences, saying, God, we wanna honor you. It's not about what we like. It's about preaching the gospel the way you called us to. And, you know, getting to see those baptisms and professions across both of our locations today, we have 43 professions, 15 adult baptisms, and seven baby dedications through baptism. And uh, that is because generation after generation at this church has been dedicated to real discipleship, not just to a shallow faith of knowledge, but a faith that is full of action. And uh, to the people who are owners here, I just want to say thank you for working tirelessly to preach the gospel of Jesus. God's doing it through you guys. And uh, I think that's something we're celebrating. Let's give our uh, longtime game changers a round of applause. And uh, speaking of positive, we're in the final week of this Stay Positive series. And I got to tell you, I got a good word this week. I can't wait to share what I've got with you today. In fact, that's the title of the message. I can't wait. I can't wait. Can't wait. I want to ask you, have you ever lived in a state of I can't wait? You know what I'm talking about, where you just always can't wait for the future? You're one of those people where it's okay today, but I can't wait for tomorrow. I can't wait till I get to that place. I am one of those people. You know, as a new Christian, I realized that I could store up treasure in heaven by preaching the gospel of Jesus, by sharing the message of Jesus, and it's all I wanted to do. And I went to college, I thought, I can't wait till I can start my real job. I can't wait till I get into youth ministry, you know? And I got into youth ministry, I thought, I can't wait until I become an executive pastor. Executive pastor, I can't wait. When I became an executive pastor, like before I became an executive pastor, I thought, I can't wait to become a senior pastor. As a senior pastor, I thought, I can't wait until we get two services, you know, two services. Then I'll be, you know, because I write this whole big, long message. I want to be able to preach it more than once. We got two services, guys. I was like, I can't wait till we get a new building, new building. I want a new building. We built a new building. I thought, I can't wait until we get another new building. And it's not like I was ever happy with what I had. In fact, in a season of can't wait, you're not enjoying the moment. You're just kind of zombieing through it, walking dead style, until you get to the next stage, right? That's what you want. You're not enjoying the present. You're yearning for the future. And what's crazy is most of my present was can't waits of yesterday. But today, I could only wait for the future. You know, I'd get home and I was distracted. I'd sit there vacant in my mind, or vacant in the present, yearning for the future. I can't wait to meet the girl. I can't wait to marry the girl. I can't wait to get a better house. I can't wait to be done with the baby stage. Can't wait to be done with the diaper stage. Can't wait till they get dressed. I can't wait till they move out. Get my wife back. Can't wait. It's not like I'm enjoying the moment. I'm just getting through the moment because I can't wait for the, for the future, to the next moment. This is gonna be better in the next moment. Last weekend, I was winterizing boat stuff, blowing out pipes, RV antifreeze, changing oil. Say that with a little pride. You know what I mean? I was changing the oil. I, Pastor John Hill, changing the oil. Only had a call for help a few times. No big deal. My wife married me and she's like, oh, so you can't do anything except for talk. And I was like, yeah, but I mean, I'm learning. I'm getting better. I'm getting better at stuff. You know, these little fingers were made for, I don't know, not for working, but here we are. I thought I can't wait for next summer. You know, next summer I'll be 38 years old. 
And just to sit there can't waiting through another six months, how much of my 38 years have I spent can't waiting? How much of my life have I not really been present, not really enjoying the moment because I'm yearning for something in the future? For me, honestly, my personality, 90% of my life, I spent can't waiting. You know, and what I say, maybe you said this, what I say is it's just a season. Just a season that I'm getting through. It's all a season I'm just getting through and then I'll have it, whatever it is. 90% of my life, I'm not enjoying it. I'm just dealing with it. Question for you guys. What percent of your life do you spend can't waiting? Hebron, what percent of your life are you just getting through? Jail, what percent of your life? Online, what percent of your life? You guys, I'm just getting through it. Just kidding. Every part of our days, can't wait till I'm off work. Think about it. In the mundaneness of your day, you wake up in the morning, can't wait till I'm off work. Can't wait till the kids are in bed. Can't wait till I can go to sleep. Can't wait for the weekend. Can't wait till I retire. Can't wait till I'm dead. That's it. That's life. Can't wait for my trip. Can't wait for spring break. I bet a lot of us, even if we're on the low end of can't waits, half our life, can't waiting. Can't waiting. Even if you're not a Christian, this is kind of a problem for positivity. Here we are trying to enjoy our lives, yet we can't wait for something we don't have. In fact, I think can't waits, out of control can't waits, are why we can't stay positive. I feel like the disciples in the Bible, Jesus' 12 closest friends, they shouldn't have really struggled with can't waits. You know what I mean? Because they're actually literally watching Jesus do the Jesus Christ thing. You know what I mean? Like Jesus is doing miracles like a boss. And how many times in our lives? I mean, I have often wondered, what would it be like? What would it be like to watch Jesus do his ministry? You know, to do the Jesus, like to watch him, you know, Superman up into the sky at the end, to watch him walk on water, to watch him feed 5,000, to watch him cast out demons. You know what I mean? To watch him calm the wind in the waves, raise the dead. I mean, to watch him change the world would be pretty amazing. I just think I'd give anything to be able to see that. Be so amazing to be there, to be one of the disciples with Jesus as he was doing that. I've always thought, if I saw Jesus do his miracles, I'd have so much faith. I'd never doubt again, ever. I mean, I'd be so satisfied. I'd never be lazy for Jesus again. I'd never sleep in and not read my Bible. I would be so dedicated. You know, if I saw that, I mean, it'd be amazing. But what were the disciples actually thinking when they were with Jesus? There's this thing called the transfiguration. If you're familiar with Dragon Ball Z, Jesus reached his final form in the transfiguration, right? He turned into a literal glowing, like superhuman, heavenly being. And James and John and Peter saw Jesus do this. And you would think at that point, they would be hanging off of every word that Jesus spoke. You just, you know, turned into this superhuman in front of my literal face. You command demons to leave, like you're God. And I'm gonna just cherish this moment. You know what I mean? There's nothing more that I could want. I could be the emperor of Rome, but I don't want that. I wanna be with you, Jesus, because look, I mean, this is, nobody else has seen it. You'd think that's what they'd be like. Uh, Mark 9, 33, though, it's not the case. It says, after they arrived in Capernaum and settled in a house, Jesus asked his disciples, what were you discussing on the road? It's a little frustrating. You know, sometimes you have those really wise people in your life. They kind of know what you're thinking before you say it out loud. Well, Jesus, he's not one of those wise guys. He actually is God and he knew exactly what they were thinking. So that's kind of hard, you know. And they didn't answer because they'd been arguing about which of them was the greatest. What they're doing, see, they believe that Jesus is gonna overthrow the Roman Empire's rule of the nation of Israel, that Jesus is gonna become the king of Israel and that they're all gonna get positions of power within Jesus's new government. 
So they're with Jesus and they're literally can't waiting for a future thing that they think is gonna happen. And I just think that's so ridiculous. It's like, are you kidding me? You just saw the most significant events in human history and you're can't waiting. You're in the presence of God himself. Jesus is God in the flesh. And you're not enjoying it because you're can't waiting. And this happens throughout Jesus's time with the disciples. This is the prevailing wind of their attitude. They're thinking when Jesus establishes his kingdom, we're all gonna be so rich. They're literally with Jesus. They're in his presence and they're can't waiting. A few days later, same thing, same thing. Mark 10, 36. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, their brothers, they saw Jesus get transfigured, right? They saw the superhuman thing happen. And um, they come to Jesus with a request. They say, Jesus, we have a request for you. Jesus says, what is your request? They replied, when you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. It's like, are you kidding me? Instead of enjoying the literal presence of God, you're can't waiting to be rich and famous and powerful. I mean, after Jesus is crucified, dead, buried, risen from the grave. So after this, Jesus, you know, he's betrayed. He's crucified, dead, buried, right? And uh, then they go to the garden tomb on Easter Sunday morning. There's an angel in there that says, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He isn't here. He is risen from the grave. Pretty cool. Then they go and, you know, they see Jesus. They're able to examine his wounds in his hands and his feet and his side. They watch a spear pierce his side, go into his heart. I mean, they see, wow, like Jesus is, you know, he's back from the dead. It's pretty amazing. You'd think they'd just be sitting there hanging off his every word. You know, I mean, all you do is win no matter what. You're the best, Jesus. You're the baddest. You're the strongest. Like we, that's it. This is just, there's nowhere else we want to be. You'd think they'd be living La Vida Loca in this moment. But that's not it. In Acts 1.6, it says, So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, do you ever have people in your life that keep asking you? I just drove to visit my brother yesterday at Wheaton College, hour and 30 minute drive. That's a long time for my four kids in a Buick LeSabre, six of us crammed in there, right? And they kept asking, are we there yet? Are we there yet? And I was like, and you're gonna die. Anyway, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore your kingdom? Are we there yet? It's like, you gotta be kidding me. I mean, you're at the greatest moment, the greatest events of human history. You've had front row seats to all of it and you're can't waiting. Question for you guys, big question. This one's important. What makes heaven heaven? What makes heaven like heaven? Is it streets of gold? Is it mansions? Is it uh, pearly gates? Is that what makes heaven heaven? Because I've seen Beverly Hill mansion tours. I've seen YouTube tours of mega yachts. They have actual gold inlays in their floors and like pearly gates and you know, all the jewels and whatever. Is that heaven? No. What makes heaven heaven is the presence of God. The disciples are with Jesus who happens to be God in the flesh. They are in the presence of God. They saw the transfiguration. They saw Jesus in his heavenly form like they've actually had a glimpse of heaven. And immediately afterwards, what do they do? They can't wait for something more. They're at heaven's doorstep, but their desire, their desire for more blinds them to heaven. They're in God's presence, but they can't enjoy it because heaven itself isn't enough because they can't wait for something more. I wonder how many of us today have missed out on the presence of God because we couldn't wait. I wonder how many of us today have missed out, missed out on the grace of God, the purpose of God, the gifts of God, of God, because we can't wait. Can't wait. God, I just want some faith. God, I just want a little bit more. This is how we live life, isn't it? 
Of course we're negative. Of course we're depressed. Of course we're anxious. Heaven itself isn't enough. No matter how good our lives get, we're waiting for the next thing. So acutely that if we experience the presence of God himself, we still can't wait. And I think this begs the question for many of us, how do we deal with our can't waits? And I think this has to do with worship. Now, I know a lot of you might be surprised by that. They're like, did we just hear him right? Worship? Okay, we're talking about can't waits. What, what do we, we mean worship? A lot of us don't even know what worship is. Some of you, if you've been to church, we call the part with the music, the Christian karaoke without alcohol, um, we call that worship. That's what we call wor- worship, right? And um, that's what I was raised with, thinking worship was. You know, it's singing these songs that have the same words over and over again. There's like no variation, but that's fine. That's what we do. And I kind of like them. Like now I, I like that. But I remember first time, you know, I was getting into the church thing and I was going to Wheaton College to become a pastor. And um, we had Chris Tomlin, my senior year in 2006, come on his indescribable tool, tour. You remember that tour? Indescribable, uncontainable, you place the stars in the sky. Remember that song? They played it like over and over and over. It was like the only song that they played just on repeat on the radio. I would love to be a Christian DJ at that time because you just hit repeat, indescribable, you're good to go for the rest of the day, right? Well, anyway, I'm in there, front row of Edmund Chapel, singing that song. We've got like moving headlights, which were new at the time. They got the haze going, they got the triptych projectors. I was used to hymns. They have this new kind of music. And I'm like, whoa, this is amazing. And I felt these tingles in my spine. And I'm like, is that the presence of God? Is this worship? Is that what this is? Because I feel it. And then like a few months later, I'm embarrassed to admit this. It was sinfully wrong for me to go to this concert, but I went to some secular concert. I don't remember what it was, like Blink-182. And I'm in the front row singing these profane things, awful. I regret doing it, but I'm doing it. And I feel these tingles in my spine. Is that worship? What is this? That's not the presence of God. Because worship isn't just music. I think more importantly, why do people in the Bible in the Old Testament, fall into the worship of false gods. You know, you got these 10 commandments. First one, no other gods before me, don't do it. It's pretty easy to make God happy. And yet these, felt like morons, keep worshiping false gods. It's like, just don't sing. If you just don't sing, you're okay. You know what I mean? Like what in the world? If you just ban singing, I mean, hey, Baal, or whatever God they're worshiping. It's like, stop, don't sing, and you're good. But, but clearly worship is more than just singing songs. It's looking at something and putting your can't waits in it, right? And I'm not saying that a a modicum of can't wait is, is not okay. It's okay to can't wait for something, but when you root your identity in it, when you say, I feel incomplete right now, but I can't wait till I get that thing because that thing is going to truly complete me, then we'll, that's what worship is. That's worship. When we sing songs, what are we doing? The songs are designed, the lyrics are designed to put your can't waits in Jesus. It's worship. But it's more than, uh, there's lots of things that are worship. Worshiping is looking at something and thinking it's gonna offer life. It's gonna give me more life than I have right now. Now in the Bible, there's this phrase called idolatry or idols. And idols are false gods. And I think idol stands for it doesn't offer life. Anything that we look for life from that doesn't offer life. And all of a sudden, the Israelites in the Old Testament make a lot of sense, right? As a kid, I thought, they're so silly. How could these undisciplined losers keep worshiping false gods? What's wrong with them? Silliness, pure silliness. But as an adult, I see it all the time. I worship false gods all the time. I mean, I fall into idolatry. Can't wait till I get this thing. And what I'm really saying is this thing is gonna fulfill this completion in my heart. My heart feels empty and incomplete. And instead of looking to God, 
We look to this earthly thing that doesn't offer life, expecting it to give us life. That's idolatry. That's what it is. And we're constantly disappointed because we're looking for life in this event, on this trip, in this thing, and then I'm gonna feel better. But we don't. You ever wonder, okay, atheists and Buddhists extended families, mom's side, dad's side, right? Or dad's side, mom's side, respectively. And um, I always wondered, why do we pray before we eat? What do we say? We say, God bless this food to our bodies. I have a pretty big atheist extended family, and um, some of them, I can clearly see that despite the fact that they don't ask God to bless the food to their bodies, God's still blessing the food to their bodies. You know what I mean? Like, it works without praying, so why do we do this? And what we're really doing is we're saying, God, we don't want to confuse your creation with the creator. And we understand that you are the author and perfecter of life, and God forbid we look at something on this earth thinking it is going to complete us when you're the only one who can't. Right? That's why we pray before foods. Why do we dedicate buildings and houses to the Lord? We're saying everything that happens in this building, everything that happens in this house, God, we don't want to confuse the creation for the creator. God, it's all because of you. Why do we dedicate babies to the Lord? We're saying, God, we're not going to find satisfaction in this baby. Of course you're not. I have four kids. I'm surprised. They definitely don't offer life. Like super, super clear. They take life. They're life takers. And that's good. I'm ready to give it but we're dedicating them to the Lord. Why do we dedicate marriages to the Lord? I don't want to confuse the creation for the creator. That's why we do it. Because we know as Christians, these things won't satisfy. And we're actively declaring with our mouths, we are not going down the road of idolatry. Because we know it's God is the only thing that's a legitimate source of life. So a few clarifying points. Many of you are wondering, is it okay to can't wait for anything? Like, are you saying I can't wait for anything? Like, I, I like looking forward to things. It's perfectly fine to yearn for things, to can't wait for things as long as we realize God is above it all. Look, I'm excited about next summer. I do love summer. I mean, look at me. Clearly, I was not made for the winter. These fingers need gloves and, and heaters and everything. But, but summer is not gonna fix the hole that I have in my heart. And when I start thinking that summer is gonna make me whole, it's gonna take away that feeling that I have deep down, or and it's gonna take away that feeling that I have deep down for something more than I'm worshiping summer. And that's idolatry because it doesn't offer life. And I do that with summer, but I think all of us have different versions of this in our own life. What are the idols that you have in your life? For some people, you worship finding a spouse or a family or your marriage. And let me tell you, spouse is not gonna fulfill you. I love being married. When I'm at my best, I'm not looking for my wife to complete me. You know, it's so easy to worship marriage and a spouse. And some of you are like, I don't worship my, my spouse. I actually hate my spouse. That is the result of idolatry, isn't it? I want you to complete me, you know, and I feel empty and I need you to give me more and you don't give me what I want. Why are you so mean and you do all these things and all I want is a little bit of love and attention, but you come home and you give me nothing and da 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 and do you know how lonely I am and how empty I am? And that's the sound of somebody who says, you're supposed to give me life. But idols don't offer life. Idolatry wrecks so many marriages, doesn't it? You just idolize this person. I see people do it with their kids all the time. And when they're young, you get these hover parents, you know, they follow them around everywhere, make sure they're okay, check on them, you know, fight all their battles for them. When they get older, you know, you're calling them 95 times a day. You don't love me. Why don't you call me more? Why don't you whatever? Look, they're not meant to give you life. They're not idols. Only God gives you life. And when you worship them, it's not going to be satisfying. Some people worship money and success. You already know the answers here. Making money to honor God is a good thing. Being successful to honor God, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But when you start saying, man, I'm gonna be famous and successful, rich and whatever, and then I'm gonna be satisfied. Let me tell you, it doesn't offer life. You know it. 
There's no satisfaction in it. No matter how much success I've gotten in my life, it's not like, oh yeah, you know what? Back when the church was 200, I, back when the church was 200, I thought, when we're 400, I mean, I'm just gonna feel so good. It doesn't offer life, folks. Whatever the success is in your life, it doesn't. So many, we just get caught up in this. You know, if I get a newer Silverado, you know, it's gonna be better than the old version. If I get a high country, if I get a Denali, it's just gonna be because a 6.2 is a rocket ship. And I just, you know, and that's what I need because my 5.3 and whatever, I need the torque of the diesel. And that's what I want. I just want the Duramax because then we'll have, some people worship travel. This is, this is one that I just, it blows my mind. You know, in leisure time, rest, adventure, it's fine. We never take a break from following Jesus though. Like when I'm on vacation from my regular life, I'm not on vacation from Jesus. I'm still going, I go to church 50 times a year. It's my commitment. Right? At best, travel is an opportunity to see the work of God more co- comprehensively. You know, to see his creation, that's fine. But when it becomes an end in and of itself, it's an idol. I mean, how many people do you know they go on a trip to find themselves? I'm going to Europe to find myself. I'm 21, I need to go to Europe. I'm gonna go on the Appalachian Trail. I'm gonna find myself. And they come back and they got long hair and a tattoo. They're missing a tooth. Maybe they got an STD. And it's like, they didn't find themselves. You didn't find yourself on the Appalachian Trail, you know what I mean? And sure it was fun, sure it was ever, but does it fix the hole in your heart? No, you come back from these vacations and you have a good time, but it's like, oh man, now I gotta go back to my life and you feel empty again. Why? Because that trip doesn't offer life. It offers fun, it offers experience, but God is the only one, the only one who offers life. Yearning for things is okay as long as we understand that everything is to, by, and for God, to quote Sam Hamster. So I think some of this begs the question, how do we know something is moving into idolatry? Idolatry is something that's easy to fall into. Obviously, when you read the Bible, you see people falling into idolatry all the time. If I look at my life, I fall into idolatry all the time. When I look to a thing that is not God to define me in and of itself, that's idolatry. And not only is idolatry rebellion, stiff-necked rebellion against God, it's also profoundly disappointing. And that's why our loving God, who is jealous, he wants us to worship him in and of itself. But, but he also doesn't want us to fall into idolatry because he loves us and knows that we're gonna be disappointed by it. Never has worshiping an idol brought satisfaction. I don't know anybody who's like, yeah, you know what, I did all this stuff and I just feel great. No, Jesus offers satisfaction. And you don't have to be a Christian to see this. Think about it. I mean, I have, or I, we've watched this ridiculously rich generation, Gen Z and millennials. I mean, you guys, we were raised with a silver spoon. Like we've had great lives. We have access to so much wealth. We live in the greatest, most powerful country. We lived in the most um, unbelievably peaceful time. I mean, so few of my generation have perished in violence and war. But we're the most psychologically afflicted, unsatisfied generations in American history. Why? Because of idolatry. And the biggest place, the reason I think this happens is because of social media. Instagram, Snapchat, Twitch, whatever it is you're doing. And we open it, what do we do? We just sit here like this, looking at other people's lives, right? Looking at other people's things, looking at other people's stuff, thinking, oh, I want that. LS swapped, that's sweet. Let's LS swap my Camry. Maybe we can put a a Cummins turbo diesel in there. Sequential turbos, honey, I wanna try it. I mean, I just, because nobody's done it before. That's what we do. And it's so profoundly unsatisfying. Story time. Uh, when I was a kid, we used to have Sunday dinner at Bob and Nancy Bridges' house. And they were this older couple. Bob was my dad's best man in his wedding. And uh, Bob and Nancy, they had kids, but they were old and gone, which is devastating when you're five because you go to the house and they have no toys. You know what I mean? It's like, what are we going to do here? They had something really cool. They had a, uh, 
Apple Lisa, like an Apple computer. Remember the one with the little teeny screen and had the mouse? First computer that had a mouse was like, this is amazing. Number crunchers. We're learning. This is the worst. You know what I mean? Like they had games, but they're only educational games. Like, why would you do that? Can't we just have fun? What in the world, right? But Nancy had something that I really liked. She had two uh, Frank Lloyd Wright architecture books. Frank Lloyd Wright is this famous architect. And th these coffee table books had just pictures. And pictures back then were amazing. Like when I was a kid, you couldn't just go on the internet and look at pictures. If you wanted to look at pictures, you had to go to the library. Remember this? And you go through the card catalog and you'd find a little topic on something you like, like architecture, okay, so Dewey Decimal System, you know, you go down there counting A, B, C, D, F, G, you know, trying to, and then you'd find the book and you just hope to God that it actually had some pictures in it. Usually it's just full of words. Sometimes it just had black and white pictures. You'd be like, come on! But Nancy had two coffee table books full of big color pictures of houses. It was just cool to see. I'd never seen anything like this. Look at these big houses. Do you remember, some of you guys who are older have done this. Have you ever gone on a mansion tour in your car? You just drive around and look at big houses. I mean, people used to do this creepiest thing in the world, right? You just today be like, are you serious? But when we were kids, this is what you did. You know, you go on mansion tours. Hebron, I know some of you guys did it. Some of you still do it, you know, but just with X's. No, just kidding. But um, was what I did idolatry? No. I don't think it's idolatry. I was just saying, it's cool. That's interesting. I'm learning about it. Today, I watched this YouTube channel on the YouTubes by this guy named Ennis Yulizmar. And here's a thumbnail, front picture of one of his videos. This is a mansion in Ibiza, Spain for the low, low price of $42 million. And look at this thing, right? It's got three terrace infinity edge pools. You can't see it, but right here, there's a white sand beach overlooking the Mediterranean Ocean. Goes all the way to this horizon list, you know, all the way to the horizon, like you can't see anything else. And it has one, two, three pools there, plus another Olympic-sized swimming pool right here, plus an indoor swimming pool inside in the basement. Huge garage, you know, with display elevator for cars. And it's got these windows up front. They like accordion open, you know what I mean? And you just see it and you sit inside. Then it's got this amazing amazing rooftop deck, elevator, all these things, workout room, because praise God, look at me, you know what I mean? I gotta, I gotta feed the wolves. Like, and I just got to this place where every night last winter, so depressed, watching a mansion tour. 20 minutes a night, watching, well, I watch at two speed. 10 minutes a night, watching a mansion tour. And I think, if I only had that, if I just had, I mean, I just wish that I'd be so, make me feel so good if I just, then I'd be complete. Here's the thing, here's the thing, you guys. If you told a 20-year-old version of myself that I'd have the life that I currently have right now, I mean, I'd lose my mind up in here, up in here. I mean, I'd go all out. Like, it'd be crazy if I could see, because look, 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 think about this. Even just one of our two church buildings, way better than I ever thought I'd get to pastor. I mean, way better. If you would have told me, right, then we got two church buildings, not one. My wife, every pastor says this, but my wife is an actual smoke show. I mean, she's gorgeous and whatever. And then I got four kids and they're all right, right? And I got this, I got this beautiful house. I mean, really, I have an amazing house. You know, we got it. It was a white elephant. Um, our realtor talked us into it. And, you know, I'm glad we got it. It's amazing. My parents live with us, which some of you are like, that's not cool, but it's actually super cool for me. It's a dream because that's the kind of guy that I am. My wife is so lucky. And, um, but for real, I have an amazing life that is better than I imagined. My wildest dreams at 20. I'm living in better than my can't waits of 20. And last winter, I just, I was not satisfied because it doesn't offer life, does it? And if I had this, it wouldn't satisfy either.
This is idolatry. My feelings, if you just, I can't wait, I can't wait, I can't, oh, I wish I had that, if I just had that, if I only had a pole barn, you know, with a drain floor and radiant heat, and I need a 17-foot garage door to fit, I don't know what, I haven't gotten it yet, but it's gotta be that high, because honey, what if we do wanna get a tank? You know what I mean? What if I do wanna buy this thing, you know? What if I want to put dual Duramax diesels, like, you know, uh, Whistling Diesel, he's got that, and that's what I want. It's idolatry. When you look at that thing and say, it will satisfy me. And it replaces the position in your heart that God is supposed to have. This happens so easily, especially with social media. And we just sit there worshiping. Oh, if only I had that. If only I had that. If only I had that. It would be so amazing if I had that. And we yearn for these things instead of yearning for God. How many of us, we have these things in our life that we yearn for more than we yearn for God? That's what we do. Oh, I worship God alone, but I mean, I want all these other things more than I want him. More than, of course we're not positive. Of course we're jealous and petty and unsatisfied and anxious and depressed. Some of you are like, but pastor, please tell me, how do we overcome our can't waits? Paul speaks directly to this in the New Testament. He came from money. He came from the Jewish Sanhedrin, which was our uh, federal government. He came from Congress. He had a seat in the Hall of Hewn Stone, which was their Capitol building, right? Money, education, he gives it all up for Jesus. And in Philippians 4.12, he says, I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living. And in the church in Philippi, they're reading this letter. They unroll it. They're reading it. And at this point, everybody's listening. You could hear a pin drop. All the babies, they shut it down. They're quiet. They want to know. I mean, how do, what is the secret? He said, in every situation, whether it's with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or with little, everybody's like, Paul, what is the secret? Just tell us. You know, I mean, they're interested. They want to know. I mean, how do we know? Paul knows the secret. Now, some of you are a little bit nervous because you know Philippians 4.13. It's a famous verse. Some of you have memorized it. Some of you, you know, you put it on your shoes before your track meet. You know this verse. The next verse is the secret. He goes, you want to know how to overcome can't wait syndrome? The secret of living, and the word here for living, the Greek involves a flourishing, a human flourishing. It's more than just happiness. It is, it is full of life. He says, the secret is this, I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. And this is the most misquoted, misused verse. I mean, it's just so, everybody misuses this. And what we think it says is, Jesus is gonna give me whatever I want. It's what he's gonna do. It's not what this verse says. What it's saying is, no matter what happens, even if I don't get what I want, even if things go terribly, even if I lose everything, Christ is enough for me. There is no outcome under the sun that will not be redeemed by Jesus. When I was in high school, I misinterpreted this. I thought I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I can win state. If I have enough faith, I mean, I can get everything I want. I can't wait to have more. And what I thought this verse meant was God is gonna give me my idols, right? If I believe in Jesus hard enough, he's a stepping stone to give me what I really want. And that's how a lot of us use God, isn't it? God is a tool. We don't love him. We love these idols. And God's gonna let us get to our idols. And we're Christians. This verse is not about winning. And it's so easy to do this, isn't it? I still do this. I still catch myself doing this. God, if I love you enough, will you give me what I really want? Will you give me that mansion? He's not, not, gonna, not gonna happen. But this verse is telling us about the great task of finding positivity in everything through faith in Christ. Whether we're rich or poor, sick or healthy, famous or insignificant, we are always going to be positive because the grace of Jesus Christ is sufficient in every situation because we have the presence of God in our life. We're not gonna be like the disciples missing out in, in, on heaven because we couldn't wait for more. Because we can do everything through Christ who strengthens us. When you give your life to Christ, what is the worst case scenario? 
What is the worst case scenario? You die in a fiery car crash. And you go to heaven. Your wife leaves you and the courts say you can't see your kids. And you go to heaven. And it's okay. And his grace is sufficient. Atheists begin to persecute us like they always have throughout human history or throughout the 20th century. And you go to heaven. And it's okay. Paul says, I can do everything through Christ. I will be positive. I will always have hope. My life is always going to be okay. And what Paul is saying, and this is big, and I don't want you to miss this. What Paul is saying is, I'm done with idolatrous I can't wait because he already has. He's already given me everything I need. He's already given me more than enough. And three times I asked the Lord to take away the issues in my life, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul says, that's why I rejoice in weaknesses and insults and persecutions and in slander, so that the power of Christ may be made perfect in me. For when I'm weak, God is strong. I'm positive in every situation. And I don't know what you're going through in your life. But as fall rolls around, I'm bummed to be headed into winter. I can't wait for summer. Can't wait for summer. You know what? This winter, I'm going to choose joy. I'm not going to fall into the pattern that I've always fallen into because I know it doesn't offer life. It's always the same. It doesn't offer life. And I'm going to say, I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. God's grace is sufficient for me. And regardless of what I say, I might go through. Like God's grace is going to be enough. My mom turned 75 this last week. And you know, I'm nervous about them dying. I suppose, I can't say I can't wait for them to die. That's not what it is. I'm afraid of them dying. But anyway, whatever. I'm afraid. And I keep telling myself, no, I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. They will die. And it's going to be okay. As I worry about our finances and the future and our country and elections and, blah, 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 and all the things that I worry about, I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. And as we leave this series, I want to challenge you to put your faith in Jesus or to put your faith in Jesus again. I want to challenge our church to deal with idolatry in our lives. In Jesus Christ, it's not just heaven later. It's joy now. It's hope now. It's purpose now. Do you want to know the secret to staying positive? Paul says, I know how to live in almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it's with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or with little, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. His grace is sufficient. His work is complete. And his power is perfect in our lives. As we close, I want to ask you to stand to your feet at all of our locations. I just want to ask us for a moment to really go into our minds and think. Maybe, maybe close your eyes for a moment if you can and stay standing. It might be hard for some of you, but um, I get it. Close your eyes with me for a minute. And I want you to visualize the idols in your life. And I want you to give them to Jesus. Jesus, forgive me of my idolatry of summer. Jesus, forgive me for my idolatry of success. And I know that only you satisfy. I give my idols to you. In return, I receive your grace, which is sufficient for all my needs. I trust you. Open your eyes again. I know that some of you have been convicted by this idolatry in your life. And if that's you, on all your seats, there's a blue card. And uh, I would encourage you to take action. Church isn't just about, oh, that was an interesting message. That pastor talked really fast. I didn't really want to fall asleep as much as normal in that dear message. We should, uh, what's for dinner? Where are we going? We going to SB19? That's not what I want this to do. What I want this message to do is transform your life. On your blue card, 
There's some boxes you can check. You know, I want to give my life to Jesus. I want more information about following Jesus. Check one of those boxes. Maybe it's time for you to come back to faith. Check a box. Drop it in um, a bucket on your way out. Take physical action on what God is doing in your heart right now. I want to see you guys find freedom in Christ. And I want this church to be a place of transformation. As we continue standing, the band is going to lead us in a song. Let's sing together now.